this podcast today, by the way, this story of looking for a fisherman uh, on a police call out, it can be pretty grim. So it's a, it's a polite warning that it may not be very acceptable to some people to listen to this because you get some idea of what the sea can do to a body. So on this story, you should listen at your own discretion. The boat, I mistimed it. I had to judge it so I would cut the rope when the, the propellers were in the water, not when she was going up. I had to put my left arm around the sh- propeller shaft to hold myself in position and cut the rope. And when I did this, she came down and cracked the hull, cracked the top of my bottle. Aquanaut. My adventures and misadventures in the early days of scuba diving off the Cornish coast. Written and read by me, James Wheeler. Well, in this episode, I want to um, talk about my, my club dive on the Mullion Island off the the harbour of Mullion, uh, on the side of the Lizard. And uh, I must uh, remind myself that when we got to, to Mullion, to a little harbour there, the fishermen did not welcome us. They were under this misguided view that we were going out perhaps to rob their lobster pots and their crabs, which is absolute nonsense, of course. But uh, it's funny with the fishermen, the relationship with us divers in Cornwall, because some fishermen welcomed us to recover their lost pots and nets. Another fisherman blamed us for stealing stealing their catch. So you couldn't win in the end. And when we got to Mullion and we um, pumped up the boat and off we went to the Mullion Island, which was about half a mile outside the harbour. It was quite a rough day, I remember. And again, the, uh, the dive boat, the Seacraft Inflatable, got swamped and we were up to our knees in water. But uh, we went to the north side of the island and I dived with Raymond Dennis. So over we went, down the side of the uh, north side of the island. It was an amazing sight. The gullies were just steep pinnacles of gullies going right down to about 70 to 80 feet. And it really was astonishing uh, uh, topography under the sea. We hadn't gone very far when we came around a corner with the sand glowing and reflecting the light from above and giving us pretty good visibility. And suddenly we saw all this green and I couldn't figure out what it was at first. And then we suddenly realised that we saw the complete shape of a boat all in green and it was green copper. So what we were looking at was the copper sheeting, which was always nailed to the bottom of the early sailing ships to stop the Torino Beetle from burrowing into the timbers of the ship and, of course, causing it to leak. And then when we shuffled the sand away, 
uh, by this copper sheeting, we found these lovely bronze pins, nails if you like, some six inches long, some a bit less, which had been used to fix the copper sheeting to the sailing boat. So we tumbled, of course, a pretty ancient wreck. And consequently, it was obvious that all the wooden part of the ship had rotted away over the centuries. It was probably about, been down there for well over 200 years. And all the wood had rotted away and just left the outline of the bottom of the ship in copper sheeting. So we thought, well, my goodness, this perhaps she was carrying treasure. But with the moving sand, you know, you could never hope to find treasure on a wreck like that. So we gathered up the pins and saved some of them to take back as souvenirs. And uh, that's all we found on that particular dive site. But it was fascinating to come across a wreck which was so old. Um, when we got back to the harbour, incidentally, we didn't mention it to the fishermen who were still very angry about us leaving from the, from the harbour, and we kept it all to ourselves. So that was our dive uh, at Mullion, and I guess the other thing I ought to mention about Mullion, which came as a bit of a surprise, and maybe a shock to some of us, that when we started diving, we suddenly realised that we were surrounded by raw sewage. Um, passing our our masks were floating, you know what, um, and in, in and uh, toilet paper, etc., and other things which I don't dare mention. So at that time, it was obvious that Cornwall was shoveling all its its uh, sewage into the sea off the coast. What a terrible thing for that to do! And thank goodness, I believe all that stopped now when we joined the European Union and they cleaned it all up. It's probably a good point here to pause for a moment because I've been talking about diving on wrecks. But I want to talk about something completely different. Living in Cornwall, you would be surprised in that, at that time we were called out to help people in all sorts of situations. And uh, I want to give you some examples of that now. The first one is a, a fisherman in St Ives on the north coast of Cornwall who snagged his trawl net um, deep out in the bay and he happened to be a friend of mine who I knew I was doing business with and he he called me up one Sunday and said can you come out because I've lost my trawl it's about £2,000 worth of, of fishing tackle and in early 1960 £2,000 was a lot of money to lose so we went down to St Ives Ray Dennis and myself I think there were Morley Phillips might have been with us but I can't remember for sure and we got on his on Jim Thomas's boat, which was called the Argosy. He had a nice boat. She was about forty-five feet long, lovely fishing boat with with special equipment for trawling. And we met him in the harbour, and he took us out, and we got kitted up on the boat. Now the only problem with this was that uh, it was a lovely sunny day, but the sea was pretty rough. There was an onshore wind, and it was between force five, uh, for late force four and force five wind on shore. So it was very lumpy, to use a Cornish expression, uh, in the conditions of the waves. So we were go steaming out in the in the Argosy, in Jim Thomas's boat. I didn't think that we were going out so far, but we did. 
and he luckily he'd left a marker boy where he'd uh, lost his his trawl net and all the tackle that goes with it so when we got out there we had to first of all get some kind of idea what depth we would be diving at so he fortunately uh, Jim Thomas had a an echo sounder on board and of course with him up and down motion of the, of the boat we couldn't get a terribly accurate reading but it was certainly over 100 feet at times and 120 others so we decided to go down Raymond Dennis and I went over went over down the down the, the rope which had a marker boy on it straight to the straight to the uh, the fishing tackle that was lost well it got darker and darker and darker and at this point I want to make a another interesting feature here about diving which I haven't mentioned before when you go below 90 feet all color usually disappears and uh, so that the bright orange uh, marker rope which was tied to the buoy on the surface to mark where the net was lost was a bright orange and when you got to about 90 feet it all goes gray because the sunlight doesn't get down far enough and you don't see much color at all so we knew from depth you get that sudden chill in your through your suit because you know you're below 90 feet there's a thermal barrier and it went down and down and down we got to 100 feet still couldn't see the net and it went down and down and down and realized that when we saw the net we were quite deep we didn't know of course what it had snagged itself in it could be anything we were sort of hoping of course that it would be a wreck so that we'd be able to come back and dive on it at another time anyway we got to the floating net and of course that is dangerous i think i mentioned before that floating nets the divers are very dangerous they float and hover in the water above your head and if you get trapped in a net of course you may not be able to to free yourself so we folded the net down to the bottom and the sand suddenly opened up and we, we soon realized I could tell immediately from the amount of air I was consuming with every hard breath that I was at 130 feet. It was quite deep. And uh, to our um, uh, relief, the the net had gathered up a great big rock. So <laughs> we thought it might be a wreck. And I believe there was a chunk of iron in it as well, a great lump of iron. So maybe there was a wreck close by, you never know. We couldn't possibly... Um, take the rock and the iron out of the bottom of the net so the base of the net so we had to cut it all free and then the fun begins we start to come up realizing of course that we'd only been down there 15 minutes to do this 15 to 20 minutes maximum and we were only just only just out of decompression time and uh, I think Raymond afterwards was quite worried that we came up and didn't do any decompression stops but the annoying thing was, when we hit the surface, the fisherman, Jim Thomas, hadn't been more concerned about recovering his net than recovering us. And he winched up the net that was left of it, and he was drifting away from us. So when we hit the surface, the waves were so high, you couldn't see the boat. It was so far away. So Raymond and I bobbed about like corks with our, with our inflated life jackets to give us more buoyancy. And uh, we had these orange hoods, so hopefully we could be seen from a distance on the, uh, from, from the boat. But Mr. Thomas 
you know, he was more concerned about recovering his net, to be honest. And I mean, when we did get on top of a wave to see where the boat was, it seemed about half a mile away. So here we were drifting with the tide and uh, we held on to each other, thinking that we better not get separated. And eventually, Jim Thomas with his fishing boat, the Argosy, steamed back. He must have seen our orange hoods between the, the dipping of the waves. And he got back to pick us up. And I might remember also that uh, getting back on, on board that rocking boat and pitching boat was damn difficult because it had no ladder. And we had to catch our time right, take our bottles off, and as, as the side of the, the boat came down, pull ourselves up damn quickly. And the waves were so high that when we caught hold of the side of the boat, we were pulled right out of the water with the lifting of the waves. So that was uh, the Diverts and Dives, which... Um, it seemed interesting at the time, but we were doing doing a man a favour. Um, to give credit to uh, Jim Thomas, he did give us fifty quid towards saving his neck towards the club the club uh, funds at Penzance Diving Club. So it was very decent of him, but he saved him a lot of money. So that was our first uh, assistant dive, you might call it, uh, at St Ives back in the early sixties. My next dive um, was quite unexpected, uh, uh, giving us assistance again to help people. And this time we were helping the Cornish police. Because in those days, in the early 60s, there were no police divers. And they had our club numbers. And I got called on a Saturday morning at home by the police to help search for a, a lost person, a body. And um, so I went with, with Wade Dennis again. And I think Morley Phillips came. I can't remember again if it was Morley or not. So long ago. Anyway, we had to drive up to a Druth, um, which was about 20 miles away. And um, they took us with a police escort to a quarry, a deserted quarry. I might add that this was the middle of February and there was snow and ice everywhere. Well, we got to this quarry and... Um, we were horrified to discover that there was a very deep cliff and, and a freshwater lake beneath this cliff which would, and the water was completely covered in solid ice. And uh, the, the plan was for us to dive under the ice and search for this body. Apparently this man was spotted near the quarry by some walkers and uh, the suggestion from the police was that he might have committed suicide and thrown himself or jumped into the jumped into the quarry below into the water. Well, that so happens that, um, with that on that particular day, I'd taken a flask of hot tomato soup. And I had a brilliant idea because I knew that the water temperature, especially fresh water, was going to be absolutely freezing. So when I got my suit on, I pulled my hood back and filled myself from the flask with the hot tomato soup to warm my suit up before entering the water. I shouldn't have done it because it stained my suit forevermore. Anyway, I had a tomato suit, 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 diving suit after that, and people always just joked to me about it. 
Well, that's going off on a tangent. But uh, Roman and I got kitted up, and the police were very helpful, gave us ropes to, to so we could go in. And um, we had to break the ice with a log, I remember, the branch, to break the ice to get into the, into the cold water. I would add that we didn't have any kind of gloves so the water was absolutely freezing and we had no idea what visibility was going to be like because it was black on the surface beneath the ice and uh, of course what we were afraid of was if we surfaced we might not be able to surface because the ice would stop us breaking through it and we'd have to find our way back to the, the, the initial entry point. Well Raymond led the dive and we got up to our waist and it suddenly dropped and we dropped down into the darkness of this cold water quarry with a lot of um, hesitation uh, and trepidation because we didn't like the idea of finding a decayed body uh, in, in, this, in this quarry. Um, all we could do was follow the, the, the quarry face around. Visibility was only about four to five feet when we stopped uh, filling up the muck with our flippers. So we decided not to use our flippers and just pull ourselves along some branches and dead wood which had been thrown into, into the quarry. We found an old bicycle, I remember, and an old bedstead that someone else had thrown in. In fact, there was an old refrigerator or something like that which people had thrown in. All sorts of junk that had been dumped in this quarry. Well, we went round what we thought was the, the perimeter of the quarry rock face and we found nobody at all but we were very anxious that we might have done because uh, if we'd been in the water any length of time it would have been a pretty bad state so we in a sense we were quite relieved i had this vision of putting my hand over someone's face under the water but that never materialized thank goodness we managed to find our way back uh, to where we just close to where we set off on the dive, but I, I remember more than anything else, this was the, probably the coldest dive I've ever been on. Absolutely freezing. I was frozen solid right through. We managed to do it. The police pulled us out with ropes. They were extremely grateful and said that the uh, chief constable would send us some money to the club for helping out Cornish, Cornish police. So the Cornwall police called us out and they called us out another occasion too, which I'll talk about next. Well, by the way, uh, I talked about the tomato soup to keep me warm. Um, I should mention that uh, before nylon suits came in, neoprene and nylon lined suits, and we just had the neoprene, the black neoprene, and you had to chalk up. You had to chalk the, the uh, the suit with French chalk in your body to get your suit on. And they were much colder, of course, you had no nylon linings. So when I poured the tomato soup down my new suit, which had a nylon lining, all the nylon went uh, tomato, tomato soup colour. So I had a tomato diving suit for the rest of my diving career. Just a funny point you might like you might like to to understand that uh, things technology was catching up and nylon suits were much stronger and, and more durable than the old neoprene suits that we first started diving with. The next call out to help the police was in fact done um, a dive which I did not go on. The police called me up, but I had to duck out of this opportunity because I had a rotten cold 
And of course, you wouldn't know this, but you cannot dive with a cold because the mucus in your station tubes blocks to your eardrums and you put your bust your eardrums if you try and dive with a cold. So you can never dive with a cold. It's dangerous and very damaging to your ears. But I relate the story because Dick went uh, to Kovrak called out by the, the police and the Coast Guard at, down at Kovrak, and uh, it was to find a missing, missing fisherman. Well, when Dick got back at the club night the following night, he related the story to us, and it's a pretty grim one. And it goes something like this. Um, the, the Kovrak fisherman was dropping lobster pots and crab pots with his son in his boat, and the procedure is that you stack the pots up on the boat and they're all tied together and weighted down with concrete or bricks inside the pot so it sinks. And they're all tied together in, in, like, in like a string of pearls. And the, the technique is for the boat to, to go in reverse. And as you go in reverse, you keep you drop a pot over the bow and the next one and the next one and the next one, bearing in mind they're all coupled together, tied together. Well, we never know the full story of this, but it seems likely, according to Dick, that um, on the last pot, the fisherman got his uh, the rope, last rope around his boot, and the last pot, of course, pulled him over. And uh, while his son was reversing the boat very slowly, and down he went. He couldn't, obviously, couldn't take his Wellington boot off, thigh boots, I think he had in those days, and he got drowned. And uh, it never was never found till three or four days later. Well, the police called us out, and Dick Dick went there with some other diver, which I can't remember. And Dick said it was a horrible sight because they hadn't gone very far to where the site was marked where he'd been lost. This fisherman had been lost overboard, and they found him hanging upside down, swinging in the water, with his head flowing, his hair flowing. Um, in the water and Dick said it was a horrible sight because the crabs, the spider crabs had taken his eyes out and this fisherman was in a pretty bad state and uh, it was clear that he, he, the rope was wrapped around his boots so Dick cut the rope and of course t took the fisherman up uh, to the surface and the lifeboat picked out the body. So that's the one which I didn't dive on but give you some idea of what kind of the kind of uh, call outs we had from from the Cornwall, Cornwall police and of course they were always calling upon us if there was any sort of tragedy or searching for bodies in the sense I'm glad I didn't go on that one because it probably would have shaken me up a bit Dick was quite upset about it so that's a a body search which I did not get involved with but I can relate to you from the horse's mouth from Dick who uh, you know, had uh, experienced this. So on this next story, it's another call out, this time from the Coast Guard uh, down at Sunning Cove. Um, the lifeboat was called out to a trawler which um, had got into difficulties not far off Sand and Cove. And it was, again, it was, a, it was a Saturday this time, I think. And I drove out to Sandin with all my diving gear and uh, got on board the Sandin lifeboat and off we steamed uh, to the, the trawler. And they were a bit worried because it was a long delay, although the, the trawler was not in difficulties, no, no life was in danger, but the, the, the trawler was com completely stranded and uh, apparently she'd snagged her propeller in fishing pots. 
and of course this means it completes the, the, the boat is not able to move and she's tied virtually to the seabed by, by crab pots and lobster pots. It was a rough day and uh, when we got out to the trawler she was rolling and pitching uh, on a heaving sea and uh, I got Curtis up on the lifeboat which was no joke because it was a rolling deck and uh, I decided to go over with it with my sharp diving knife and see if I could cut the rope. Well, I jumped in from a quite a height from the from the uh, the lifeboat, swam to the side of the of the trawler, and discovered to my horror that uh, the the rope which was tra- trapped around the propeller was nylon rope. Now, when you bind nylon with nylon rope and it rolls up, it gets hot and heats up. So what you had was a solid ball of nylon which of course you couldn't possibly chisel away or, or, or any, with any hope. A diving knife was useless. And even with a hacksaw, you would have great difficulty doing it. So the best I could do was to cut the rope. So I did this. and uh, But it wasn't easy because the, the fishing boat was rocking and pitching and coming down pretty heavy. And she was a steel boat. And if she'd hit me on the head, it could have been uh, curtains for me. But I managed to cut, cut it free. And uh, to my amazement, the engine started up on the uh, on the trawler, and the propeller was, I could see the propeller beginning to turn. And they shouldn't have done it while I was still in the water. It's a bit of a silly thing to do. Anyway, I managed to get back on board the lifeboat, and the uh, the fishermen in their trawler were very grateful that I'd take my take my um, in trouble to dive under and and free them from being trapped by the the crab pot nets. Quite common for fishing boats to get caught in tra- crab pot nets and crab pot uh, ropes, sorry, not nets, and uh, get the propeller jammed up. So that was a job I did on the Salem lifeboat on a Saturday morning in rough weather. My next dive was quite unexpected. Uh, um, we were in the pub one night uh, in the Fisherman's Arms in, in Newlyn, and uh, the skipper of a, a vessel came in looking for us. And he was the, sc- the captain of the research vessel Jane. She was a government boat, and uh, he, he was in trouble because uh, he, couldn't con- he couldn't do what he wanted to do without the help of divers. And he sat down with us, he had the the, the kindness of buying us all a pint, and he mapped out what he wanted us to do. He wanted us to go off the coast, um, the other side of Port Leven, and search, help search for tin to get samples from the seabed. So we arranged for the following morning, which was a Sunday, to go out on the research vessel Jane. Now, I'll give you some idea of the size of her. She was 100 feet long or more. She was a steel, a steel hull boat. She was top heavy, with an with a iron bridge and very top-heavy and rolled like a bowel. And of course, was it's sod's law because the sea on that Sunday morning was pretty rough. It was a lumpy sea. And uh, we didn't like the idea of much of going out in that weather. But he had a, a, a schedule to keep. So we all went out with about five of us, I believe, in the end. And uh, we went out on the research ship Jane. By the way, that's spelled J-A-Y-N-E. And uh, she was a government vessel doing research. 
So he went out to, off the coast of Port Eleven on the other side of Mountain Bay and um, we didn't quite know where we were going in terms of, of um, location other than we were quite a way out, about a mile out from the coast. And I asked the skipper to take an echo sounding to see what depth it was. But it was just over 100 feet, 120 in other places, and she was rolling and pitching this ship, the Jane, and the only way we could get in was to jump from the side of the ship, which was a good 18-foot drop into the water with a bit of a crash, and uh, we weren't very happy about that. Well, the task was he'd, he'd thrown out the anchor, and she was held by the anchor, and we were given ropes handed down to us. At the bottom, we had an aluminium tube about just over a metre long. And the idea was that we should push it into the seabed, into the sand or the mud, and get a sample to bring back to search for, see if there was any, any uh, mineral, tin, tin minerals in the seabed. So four of us went down. We each had a, 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 a tubular aluminium uh, sampling section to take down with us and down we went over the anchor down the anchor rope one after the other and we got to it was just over 110 feet I remember and it was sand and shingle and uh, I couldn't get this I had to get my body weight behind on my weight belt to push the sampling tube into the sand and it was quite difficult it was quite a big tube in the end, I had to find a rock and bash it in into the seafloor and then pull it out with the sample inside. And of course, they pulled them up and they were very pleased to get these samples. I never knew the outcome, whether they found samples of tin mineral, I don't know. But this is where the fun begins. Um, when we got back uh, on the surface, we suddenly realized how in God's name are we going to get back on board this boat? because she was pitching and reeling at such a height, they had no ladder for us to climb up on. And then what made it worse, she hadn't been cleaned for a long time, and the underside of the boat, right down to the keel, was covered in barnacles. Now barnacles, about the size of a walnut, are very sharp indeed, and we had visions of our suit getting ripped to pieces when this the hull of the of the, of the research ship Jane was bobbing up and down in this rough sea. Well, two of us got on board, and then finally we all got on board because the, the skipper sent a, 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 a line on a, a beam over the side of the boat with, with a foothold in it, so we had to take our flippers off, put our foot in the, in, in the rope, and he pulled us up with a winch one by one. So getting back on board, was a bit of a trial and then just as we got back on board the fun really begins because uh, he suddenly realized that he got his propeller wrapped around crab pots and it was a twin 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 propeller boat and both propellers were wrapped around the the the, the, the crab pots and the lobster pot ropes according to the the uh, the engineer who came down and said he can't move the boat at all now the problem was, of course, that we used quite a, we consumed quite a lot of air on our dive to begin with. But somebody had a volunteer to go over the side and free this, these propellers from the ropes which they'd been bound up in. 
Well, Muggins here, me, uh, I drew the first straw, probably because and only because I had the most air left in my bottle. They only had about 30 atmospheres left, but that was enough because it was only about 10 feet deep beneath the hull. So I had to get my bottle on again and jump again this enormous drop into the sea off the stern of the off the stern of the SS Jane, the, sorry, the RS Jane, the research vessel Jane. And I swam to the stern and uh, I could quickly see that the rope was coming up and it wrapped around the, the, the rudder and the propellers. Now I have to explain this, it's difficult to explain, but you have to understand that when she was rising and falling with the sea, uh, on occasion the propellers were right out of the water. So how was I going to cut this without hurting myself? Well it was tricky because she came down, she weighed, must have weighed over 100 tonnes, and uh, if she'd struck me, uh, she would have killed me. So I had to keep well away from the, from the boat. So I did this and uh, realised again, of course, like I'd experienced before, that the nylon rope around the propellers had, had frozen into a solid ball of nylon. So there's no way you could have cut that free. And uh, so I had to get as close as I could to free the rope. And on this last minute, the boat, I mistimed it. I had to judge it so I would cut the rope when the, the propellers were in the water, not when she was going up. I had to put my left arm around the propeller shaft to hold myself in position and cut the rope. And when I did this, she came down and cracked the hull, cracked the top of my bottle. And thank goodness, if she hit my head, I would not be here talking to you today to relate this story. It hit the bottle and I was afraid with the compressed air bottle it would have exploded on my back and that might have been the end of me. So had my bottle stood up to 100 tons of steel coming down and cracking the top of it, it did break the top of the tap of my bottle and it began to leak. So I managed to get back on board with the same process, putting my foot in the line from a beam come over from the boat and they pulled me up quite relieved that I hadn't got uh, smacked on the head because it would have been the end of me. So that was the research vessel of Jane, which um, upset me because trying to get back on board, I ripped all my legs and my knees on the barnacles of the boat and ruined my diving suit. So um, I anticipating the skipper would buy me a new, a new diving suit. He said he would. I can tell you now, he never kept his promise. I never got any compensation for my loss of my diving suit, or any compensation for the possible damage to my to my bottle, to my head or my bottle. So that was a bit disappointing. They let me down. So that was a search vessel Jane off uh, Port Leven coast, searching for tin samples. Well, my last story on this um, particular episode, I want to move away now from, from what we did to help people, the Cornish police and the Coast Guard, and move away to a dive which I don't wish to remember, really. We went down to Sandon on a Sunday morning. We often dived on a Sunday at weekends. And then we took our, our inflatable sea craft down to the harbour, down to Sandon Cove. Well, we had a mixed reception. The fishermen did not want us to inflate our dinghy on the slipway. They were quite nasty to us and said we should clear off. 
and two of them came up to me and said that they that we had been we would go out and steal lobsters and crabs from their lobster pots off the coast and uh, we had an argument with them and I told them I said look you know you you see a lobster in an environment which is completely alien to it in a crab pot on the boat the lobster is completely helpless but uh, he didn't realize of course that if you see a lobster in its own natural environment onto the sea it's as fast as a as a rocket ship and it goes spinning around and around the, the bottom of the, of, the, of the crab pot, lobster pot, at 90 miles an hour. So I suggested to him, you're going to put your hand in that, are you, and lose a finger? You must be joking. We wouldn't do it anyway. We don't steal lobsters from anybody or crabs from anybody. But I'm afraid he wasn't convinced and went away still quite angry. Well, in any, any event, we decided to go for a dive. He got kitted up. And we went off to search for a wreck which was just around the corner from the harbour. And uh, in fact, when we got down there, about 50 feet, uh, it was a wonderful underwater topography, clear day in golden, golden silver, golden silver sand. It was a beautiful dive. We never find any wreckage. But before we could say <coughs> Jack Robinson, um, the sudden shock was that I had some pain in my back and in my right thigh of my leg. And I couldn't think what it was. The fisherman had come out and started feathering us with a line, a lead line, with 22 hooks on the line. And each of these hooks was spinning around and they feathered deliberately right over our bubbles to, to catch us with these hooks. And I had a hook, hook in my right shoulder and a hook in my thigh, which went right through my suit and made me bleed with a hook. I couldn't get it out, I had to cut off with my diving knife. So that was a very unpleasant and a nasty, a nasty thing to do for sand fishermen to do that. I know it's a long time ago now, but uh, and those guys have probably passed on, but it was a very unpleasant thing to do and uh, certainly totally unnecessary and indeed dangerous. In the next edition of the podcast, the four of us take a plunge into the world of salvage diving, and for that we needed a dive boat to take us further afield. The Corval was our next naval pinnace that we renamed Aquanaut. <laughs>